Hello and welcome back to Homefront, uh, the weekend edition, with Benjamin Rose and myself, Gudali Guttentag, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Benjamin, hello to you. Hello, Gudali. Unfortunately, a, a dark beginning to the morning. Indeed. Breaking news, the shooting in Yerushalayim, multiple deaths at Knisala Ir. When I heard the name, saw the pictures, saw the video, it immediately felt intensely personal because I'm on the way to that bus stop now. It's the way in, way out to Yerushalayim at Enshinskiva Shol, etc. Ramema area known as the Trempiada. Where do you start when you see news like this? I mean, Segal, as a, a journalist, is reporting immediately that the soldier who killed the attacker was actually out of Gaza for 12 hours on his way back. He was at this bus stop, again, called the Trempiada, where people get the hitch a lift. He was on his way back there. It kind of emphasizes the external and internal battle, the extent to which it's the same thing, really. These are the same Palestinians. These are the same vicious killers and we were attacked externally and internally as well. Another thing just I'd note there, Binyamin, is that initial reports that the terrorists lived in Surbacher, which is after Har people may know where that is. And the important thing to note is that these are Palestinians basically by choice. Many of them carry to Dutzahut and Israel blue and white ID card. They can move around, etc. And then again and again, these attackers come and commit attacks in the first weeks of the war. Binyamin, we talked about how there was quiet on the ground. And that was simply because these Palestinians could not move around and there were strict curfews and there was quiet. And it's a reminder again, that this is the bleeding wound that is Yerushalayim's Palestinian neighborhoods. And once again, a reminder of how dangerous it is the current situation. I'm just struck at the Biden tweet from a couple of days ago, where it basically sounded like he was saying that, you know, we need to go ahead with the two state solution and Blinken keeps saying the same thing. And again, they put the onus on Israel. They put the onus on the Jews that somehow it's our fault that we're an occupying power and that we're not giving uh, the Palestinians a sufficient economic opportunity as if that's all they're looking for is economic opportunity. And if they only had uh, great high paying jobs, like the president of the United States and the secretary of state, that they would drop their arms and everything would be peaceful. It's not true. And there was a really painful and symbolic example of this right at the beginning of the war. One of the kidnapped was Israeli high-tech tycoon, who's very well known, who's made it his business for years to foster economic peace with the Palestinians. He put his high-tech research centers in, he's got in Israel, but he's also gone to West Bank and he had dreams of putting them elsewhere as well. And his daughter was kidnapped. I don't remember her name anymore, but the point is there is a case, the economic peace. There's no question that if these people don't have jobs, then they will be even more angry. But the idea that if there's an economic path to peace, when you've got so many social apprehensive percentage of them who believe in terror, who are killers in the making, the idea that, that you can do without very, very strong defenses and strong security measures is a joke. And as you say, this highlights the, the wrong thinking there in those quarters. But we know, and let's move on a minute. It's a moving story, this ceasefire that seems to have held despite the brinksmanship on both sides, uh, especially on Hamas's side. And we don't know how long this is being extended. And we've talked a lot in recent days about the feeling that Israel has lost the initiative, ground to the hold. We don't know it's going to be renewed under international pressure, et cetera, et cetera. In that context, we have the individual stories of the hostages. And one that's particularly gripped the world, literally in front page news the last few days, has been that of the Bibas family, especially the redheaded baby, Kfir Bibas, who was nine months old when he was taken to Gaza, together with his mother, Shiri, together with his older brother, Ariel, four years old. The father was taken to Gaza in very, very bad shape, having got a grievous head wound. No one knows the state. And this has been an example of the bestial nature of these kidnappers and killers that Hamas were dealing with. They said yesterday, the news is that they'd been killed by an Israeli airstrike. We know they're a pack of lies. Even liars can tell the truth sometimes. But this particular story of Kfir Bibas, 
has obviously struck home in many places, therefore it's on the front pages. But for me, again, it just feels personal because about a few weeks ago, I met the family's cousins, a young man, a woman, and they were sitting there in the center of the pause, keep saying he's nine months old. And the point is, he's actually 10 months old now. He spent an entire tenth of his life in captivity. And this was what she was crying about. And now it's almost a four month later, he's now 11 months old. This is a, a baby who's spent a significant portion of his life, if they are indeed alive in Gaza. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to, to see. And there's just nothing but tears to shed when you hear reports like that. It's important to see the sympathy of the world about uh, this particular family. I wish it could be extended to all of the hostages. Of course, when you see a picture of, uh, like you said, a 10-month-old uh, red-headed baby, so obviously your heart is going to go out to him. Again, the fact that uh, this isn't being extended to every hostage is something that uh, needs to be explored as well. And once again, I'm afraid that uh, Israel is getting played on the whole hostage release issue. As of today, we hear that only eight are going to be released tonight in return for the extension of the ceasefire by one more day. The previous agreement was 10, but because they released a couple of Russians yesterday, so they said, okay, we're only releasing eight Israelis. Well, why are we tolerating this? I really don't get it. Uh, fine. Uh, um, but what are the options? When you play a very, very weak hand, they know by this stage, Israel is desperate those hostages back. When it's so obvious that you play a weak hand, then you lose the game. So what are the options at this point? So the options are that uh, one of them is that you say, fine, so that we're not releasing three for one, we're releasing two for one. But that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is start attacking again. This was an intense debate in the security cabinet, and that is the ultimate question. But, but you know what? I think at some point, it's going to have to dawn on Israeli society that the costs of what's going on over here, it makes no sense to trade future soldiers' lives, but lives of future civilians you who know, can lose their lives because of a display of Israeli weakness now, which is intended to save lives. At a certain a point, this debate, and I've not seen this debate strongly enough, has to come out into the open and say that this could cost us lives. And as the Gemara says, my chazis, how can you say the blood of one is more red than the blood of the other? And that is a debate we're not having. It's almost like a fairy tale. It's almost La La Land in which Let's pretend that this is entirely cost-free, that that soldier's job's to put their lives on the line. Yes, it is. But essentially, weakness now invites terrible retribution later. And this is what I fear. This is what I think Israelis in general are feeling, but it's not coming out. It's simply not coming out in the media. I can't explain that. I think one of the problems that I've mentioned all along is that we're not focusing at all on our humanitarian losses. We're not uh, talking about the communities that have been destroyed that need to be rebuilt. We're not talking about the couple of hundred thousand Jews that have been uh, chased from their homes. Just an example, uh, I was in Tel Aviv yesterday for a couple of hours, and I was on Allenby Street. Normally, it's uh, hustle and bustle there. There's uh, dozens and dozens of buses and, and cars, and sometimes they're competing with each other, driving in lanes where only buses are supposed to come. And there's uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of pedestrians, and while the stores were open yesterday, I would say that the majority of the stores were shuttered. Uh, there were very few buses. There was almost no vehicular traffic at all. I found parking immediately, and sometimes it takes me 45 minutes of driving around if I don't feel like paying for a parking lot on that particular day. I found a spot right away. It's sad to see things have not returned to normal at all. Then afterwards, uh, we went to Ikea in the Rishon Lezion to uh, do some shopping, buy some wedding gifts. Uh, we have a lot of customers coming up in our family, which we'll talk about some other times. 
It's nice to see some good news, but the Kia was also very, very quiet. Plenty of parking in the lot. Usually it's jam-packed. And you're lucky uh, you get there at the time of day we did that you can find a spot anywhere nearby. Things are not back to normal here. Businesses are closing down and we hear nothing about this. We only hear about the humanitarian needs of the Arabs. And last night I was watching a video clip of a whole mob scene of Arabs in Gaza who were standing around the vans, which were returning the hostages. Infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. Number one, they all have their cellular phones and they're all taking pictures. So obviously there is internet there and they're not poor. They have the latest smartphones and none of them looked emaciated or starving to me, Gedalia. That's because they're not. That's because this is all a myth. They're very well fed. And by the, by the way, do you see some of the before and after pictures of the war in Gaza? There's a, one website in particular, Abu Ali Express, that loves to show it. But if you take a look at some of the before pictures in Gaza, this is not a poor refugee camp. There are some very, very nice neighborhoods and very nice streets and a lot of high rises there. I'm not saying these people are living like they are in Monaco. No, no, this is just a propaganda land. Yeah. Yeah, their plight is totally exaggerated. But can I just take off on that point and just round up what you're saying over there? I had a conversation last night with someone who's very connected to the giving scene, who was very involved channeling large funds to Israel at the beginning of the war. And he said, look, there's a sense in some quarters of America that this is kind of over, that the soldiers, you know, it's a question of some soldiers, et cetera, but the emergency is over and life is back to normal. And it's hard to emphasize how far from over this crisis is. And the nature of this crisis is that it's long, it's open-ended, it's drawn out, but it's historic. I think it's a reset. It's a new way of life here. And unfortunately, a reversion to a previous iteration of Israel, which is Israel under economic and military crisis. And if you're a, a giver or, or whatever it is overseas, this is not the time to kind of say, well, we've done our bit. Unfortunately, Israel needs help. The Kodalim needs help here. The, there's families who have been evacuated and they're not going back. The whole of the north of Israel, people are just simply not going to go back. The economy is in a slump. It's time for a kind of a Marshall Plan for what goes on over here because it is big. It is big and it's not going back quickly. To end with something slightly unusual, we have the news of Henry Kissinger, who was the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, obviously a legend. He died yesterday. And it was a very strange reunion because I actually had two separate conversations over the course of about three or four hours yesterday in which I made random references to Henry Kissinger, to the people. And one of them texted me back overnight. He said, you know anything there? I said, I had no knowledge. It was very, very bizarre. And I, I find my thoughts running to him. And it's worth saying something about him anyway, because look, he was born in a Yekisha home. He went to his parents, good Yekisha Jews who went to the Washington Heights, et cetera, in New York, where they moved there, they fled. And unfortunately, he left the fold. And he was a survivor. He was very revealing that if you see in his biography by Walter Isaacson, you can see he was clearly traumatized by his whole experience being beaten up by the Nazis uh, and as a teenager. And he was clearly traumatized by that so much so that he denied how he was ever affected whatsoever by his experiences and the fact that he'd lost half his family in the Holocaust. So that was clearly the signs of somebody who fleeing from themselves. And I think his subsequent path needs to be taken in that context. But one thing I want to say, first of all, is in terms of his analysis of the world, he was such a chacham that he was courted. His wisdom was courted. He was an intellectual celebrity right till the end of his life. And But there's one thing I wanted to say that was relevant kind of his geopolitical legacy, which is that he understood the nature of the American power. He said he understood the weakness of one place would be interpreted as weakness overall. And that he followed in his diplomacy in the Cold War. And he would understand that if you don't stand up to Iran in one place, for example, as America is failing to do over here, China is going to take advantage. If you do stand up to them, they're going to get the message. All the people who want to challenge America's dominance are going to take advantage. 
And so I think it's very, very short-sighted. Kissinger, look at this kind of axis of evil over here, would say you can't just isolate the Israel-Hamas conflict in one picture. And if you just want to isolate it, then it'll come back to bite you. Iran will come back to bite you. China certainly will. Russia will as well. That's what I think you would have said. Henry Kissinger understood uh, military power. He understood political power. He understood military power in that he always told uh, American presidents Nixon and Ford, who he served as Secretary of State, that uh, you have to respect Israel's air power. But one of the reasons why the Pentagon has always been pro-Israel, as opposed to uh, the State Department, is Kissinger understood the centrality of air power and military power, especially in a place like the Middle East. And as a result, he was able to persuade the Pentagon, who's always been pro-Israel, to support Israel. As far as politically is concerned, a few years ago, I interviewed Zalman Shoval, who was uh, Israel's ambassador to the U.S. I remember that. That was a good one. Yeah, it was one of our cover stories. And he wrote about a 1990 meeting that he had, or it might have been 1991, with Henry Kissinger. And uh, Shoval wrote in his report to the prime minister, he's quoting Kissinger here, uh, Kissinger's central thesis is that Israel should not be overeager to achieve peace agreements. The Israeli interest is to establish non-belligerency arrangements and determine defense and demilitarize zones between it and its neighbors. And then Kissinger went on to express concern that uh, regarding self-government in all of Judea and Samaria territories, since uh, this was pre-Oslo, but only about a year or so before Oslo, he said that if you have self-government in Judea and Samaria for the Arabs, then it's liable to prevent us from achieving secure borders. The reason why is because the moment that self-government is established, all the countries in the world will send diplomatic representatives to this entity, which is likely to become a nascent state. So in summary, peace is secondary, security is vital. So someone ought to remind Kissinger's successor, Secretary of State Blinken, who's here in Israel again today, of that quote. And then it might change America's focus as far as what needs to happen first. But this is a bumper weekend wrap-up episode. I just want to finish with a bright spot. Uh, we do these occasionally. Maybe you saw this yesterday. On these nice pictures going around. The shul in Gaza called Lebron, which the soldiers set up over there and some building they've taken over completely a million times and they have Chris Otero there and somebody posted, it's not unclear whether there's coffee room sponsorship available there as well. I, I don't doubt one of our readers is going to pick up on that. But it's lovely to see this. It's a type of thing that's both cute and inspiring as well that delights the hearts of people like me. Seriously, it's a recognition, something that should be very much uppermost in our minds now as we, in the aftermath of the attack this morning, in general, these very difficult times, that recognition that it's not, not all of us, it's Hashem, Hashem is our own military power and our own efforts can only do so much with the hands of someone, the force of Hashem above. And that is itself a comforting thing and a bright spot as we go into the week ahead. I'm going to wish you and I wish listeners a good Shabbos. 